Turn to the book of Jude, please. I want to read it all together. Jude, we're going to study verse 6 today. I just want to read from verse 1 down to verse 6 to remind us of where we've been over the last several weeks. So this is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing this sometime in the mid to late A.D. 60s. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he's not going to inform them of something new. He's going to remind them of something that they know. And so in verse 5, So now I want to remind you, Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So the book of Jude is dealing with unbelief that was present 30 to 35 years into the founding of the church. An apostate, and he's dealing with something called apostasy. Someone who has rejected Christ is is an apostate. An apostate is somebody who has once held strong Christian beliefs. They've affirmed the truths of the Christian faith, but now live by rejecting that or defecting from that truth. Now, this does not mean that they have left the church because Jude writes that they have crept inside of the church. They've just left the truth. It's not necessarily that they've left the church. Some do leave the church, but some stay around the church and stay in it, but they defect from the truth. And sometimes we know exactly who it is that has defected, and sometimes we don't really know who has walked away, for they don't say anything, but they still reject, but Jude is dealing with this reality of those who once affirmed the great doctrines of the faith, salvation in Christ alone, and they have turned away from that and completely walked away from the Lord. So here we are studying Jude's letter three decades into New Testament church life, and many of the churches were experiencing something that different that they were experiencing early on. Early on in the life of the church, The main issue they were dealing with was persecution. Persecution from Rome and also persecution from the religious leaders and other Jewish groups in regard to the affirmation of Jesus being the Messiah. So in the early years of the church, that's where the great emphasis came. And now three decades into the life of the church, that is still present from the outside pressure from Jewish people who rejected Christ and also from um, Trajan Domitian, Nero, all of those emperors were giving great persecution to the church. And so Jude is wanting to write now to help equip Christians to be ready for what they are hearing. What has crept in, people who are members of the church, 
sit down with them, and they're now affirming different things, drawing people's minds and hearts away from the purity of the gospel. And so in verse 3 there, this leads Jude to write, Beloved, although I wanted to write to you, I was eager to write to you about this common salvation that we have, I found something or I sent something more important than I needed to write to you about. And so he says there, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you, asking you to be the kind of people in, a, in their generation to contend for the truth of the faith. And so he says, for you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And I want to remind us about this. And I know this is kind of a broken record for me, but we need this reminding. We are not waiting in the year 2023 for a new book to bring it all together. We have everything that we need to understand God's heart, to understand who God is, to how to operate the church, how to understand things that are happening in the culture around us. And so this scripture that has come to us was delivered once for all. And it was delivered a long time ago. And under the leadership of the apostles and the prophets, I remind us that we trust their leadership as to what needed to be put in the canon, which is the books that we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we trust them. The church was built, yes, on the foundation of Christ, obviously, with Him being the cornerstone. But the prophets and the apostles are key to the foundation of the church and what they wrote and what they taught are incredibly important for us. And so Jude writes that this was once for all delivered to the saints. It had become a critical hour for the church, as Jude was writing here, for them to contend or fight for the faith against such people. For he says in verse 4 that there were dangerous people who had now come inside. They had crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated, he writes, for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God and the sensuality. And Jude writes that they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I shared this last week, but I remind us again this morning, Jesus warned of this as well. To watch out for those who creep in and come into Christianity or, or to a church or to a ministry or to a life group or to a certain circle and they've come in the wrong way. And so Jesus himself said in John 10 verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So spiritual thieves sneak in and they become an enemy within the faith. And the critical and greater battle that the church faced as Jude writes this, and I believe that we face today, is now mainly within the church. Within what we would call evangelical Christianity. Where the design is that people have come in to corrupt the church and rob believers' confidence in the authority of God's Word. And so all over the planet this weekend, uh, many churches worshipped yesterday on Saturday, many worship on Sunday, some have already met, some are meeting, some will be meeting later. All over the planet, there has been the visible church and the invisible church. There's a visible church, and that's this, what we're doing this morning. You can see people. 
So all over, yesterday, today, people have gathered in the name of Jesus to sing songs, hopefully to preach the word. So there's a visible picture. But here's the reality. Not everyone who comes inside of a building, comes to a worship service, goes to a life group, is, is a part of the invisible church, which I mean, what I mean by that is authentic, true believers. There's lots of people who come and you can see them. But are they truly born again? Have they truly come to faith? And so, so sometimes it's hard to know who's a part of the visible church and who's a part of this individual, indivisible church in regard to authentic faith. And sometimes even within the visible church, there are those who have snuck in to cause issues connected to true faith. And I've shared with us in these weeks and I remind us again this morning that you can spot them based on what Jude tells us here. The first way to spot them is in verse 3, is that false teachers and apostates, they affirm other things as more authoritative than Scripture. And so if you ever hear anybody saying, well, I've got a new idea, I've got a new thing, then your ears should perk up and say, that is going to lead to apostasy. There is not a higher authority than we've been given than Scripture. And so Jude tells us in verse 3 to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The second way Jude tells us that we can identify them is in verse 4, is that they will diminish or deny aspects of the humanity or the deity or even the words of Jesus. And that's in verse 4. Also in verse 4, we see the third thing that we have talked about in these days is that they will twist or deny truth in favor of more sensuality. Now, most of the time we hear the word sensuality, it's more in a sexual connotation. And it it can obviously definitely mean that, but can also mean just appealing to the senses. You follow Jesus and he's going to give you that car that you've always longed for. And there's an appealing in this teaching that there's going to be a sensual blessing that is connected to following Jesus. And so Jude says you can spot them in these three ways. Now Jude's focus is mainly to aid and help those who are within the church to maintain a strong faith and not get caught up in anything that is contrary to the true gospel or to embrace a more more cultural-influenced Christianity. That is all around us today. Christianity that looks like and sounds like the culture. So to help these believers, out of a pastor's heart, the Lord's half-brother writes to give them a reminder now as we come to verse 5, 6, and 7, three stories that we believe that these he's writing to Christians whose background is they were Jews. And now they've come to faith And he gives them three specific Old Testament stories, examples of apostasy and how God judged the false teaching or the false rejection and defection from the Lord. Now, because there's just three sentences summarizing these three specific instances, we can safely assume, sometimes it's careful to assume too much, we can safely assume that the readers would have known exactly what Jude was talking about. 
So those who read verse 5 we talked about last week, connected to the ten spies, they went in and spied out the land. They're right on the border. They can see the promised land. Ten of them come back and say, uh, we can't do it. Two of them come back. Joshua and Caleb say, yes, we can. And we can because God is able. But the ten convince a whole nation. And a whole nation, 40 and above, they, they all die out. And, and they, they die in the, in the wilderness. And so Jude gives that example. And then today, he's going to give the example of apostate angels. So Jude gives us three examples. If you read Second Peter chapter 2, he gives three examples. A couple of them are the same. One of them is different. So Jude, has, Jude writes about the apostasy of the Jews. We saw last week, he's going to talk about the apostasy of the angels today. And next week, he's going to give us a picture of the apostasy of the Gentiles connected to Sodom and Gomorrah. 2 Peter 2 has three examples. It's the angels. Peter also writes about the generation before the flood and their apostasy. And then um, Peter also writes about Sodom and Gomorrah. So in these three examples, Judas reminding Christians, not not informing them of something new that they didn't know, but... He's reminding them of something that they knew. Three Old Testament examples where apostasy was present and God brought judgment upon that apostasy. Now I want you to look up here just for a second, okay? Really important. God judges apostasy always. He will deal with it. And most of the time apostasy comes out over time. It's revealed, it's seen, it's understood. And so he will will deal with it either now or he will deal with it in the future in some kind of way. And so Jude writes in verse 5, I want to remind you who are receiving this letter of things that you once knew that may have slipped your mind about it, maybe, and I want to remind you about that. So as we come to Jude 6, most of my research is on what is referred to these apostate angels and and many people have tried to fully understand okay what does this mean in Jude 6 look with me again in verse 6 and let's read it we get kind of get the context and then we're going to begin to walk through it and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal change chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So a question has come in all of my research as I looked at this, is what is this referring to? So I want to initially kind of give what I think it's referring to. We're going to walk through Jude's text, and then we're going to come to what I believe is the Old Testament reference to this so that we can understand as people about this. Now, some of you are guests today, and I don't know you, but I know a lot of you. None of us in the room are angels. Angels of God are holy. We know demons are fallen angels. So um, the question might come up, what do I as a human who is born in sin, have now come to faith in Christ, I've been redeemed, the hope of heaven is mine, my salvation is secure. What is the apostasy of angels have to do with my life? Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit decided that we needed to know about this story and we needed to learn from it. 
And so, so while none of us are angels, there is great application for humans to walk through this. And that is why it was included in the text here. So let me give you three ideas, three prominent ideas as to what Jude 6 is referring to. One idea is simply this, is that some scholars say we just have no idea at all what Jude is referencing here. Well, I don't think that's a very good perspective in light of Jude chapter 5. As the recipients of this letter, Jude says, I'm reminding you of something that you know. This is something that you know. I'm not giving you any kind of new information. Scripture interprets what? It's a big thing here. Scripture interprets what? Scripture. So using the model of Scripture interpreting Scripture, there can be no doubt that Jude 6 references something in the Old Testament. Because Jude is saying, I'm reminding you of something that you know. So this group would have been very familiar quickly without Jude explaining in, in great sentences. He just writes one sentence and they would know what he's talking about. Second perspective of this that scholars have is that this is a reference to the fall of Satan. I also find this reference to the original fall of Satan when he was in heaven as Lucifer, this angel. He rebels against God and he is cast down here. And the reason I find this lacking credibility is that Satan is not referred to being in chains until the millennial kingdom when he is bound for a thousand years. So let me read this to you. This is Revelation chapter 20 verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Well, according to Revelation 20 there and some other places, we know that Satan is not yet chained because you remember in the desert, who does Jesus meet? Satan. Three temptations that are there. We also know that Jesus faced demons um, throughout his earthly ministry where some even asked him this. This is Matthew 8. 28 and 29. And when they came to the other side, Matthew writes to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, the demons did, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? So we know that Jesus encountered Satan in the wilderness, in the desert of a 40-day period of time with, with those three temptations. We know that Jesus encountered some demons who are not in a eternal chains, locked away in gloomy darkness. Some of them are free and they are roaming. We also know that in one of Peter's epistles, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter gives a description for us what Satan is doing right now. Satan is not locked away, according to Peter. This is what Peter writes. He says, you be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking someone to devour. So in all of these voices, verses, as of now, Satan and some of the demons are not bound in everlasting or eternal chains, as Jude writes in verse 6. So we can put this to rest that this is not a reference to Satan or the millennial kingdom. This is a reference to a specific group of angels who did something so horrible that they had to be locked away for all of eternity. So this leads me and I think a lot, many others um, to go, okay, so what is this referencing? And I think this is a reference to us all the way back to Genesis. And so I want you to turn just for a moment to Genesis chapter 6. We're just going to read it and then we're going to go to Jude and we're going to um, spend a little bit of time walking through um, verse 6 to understand about this. Genesis chapter 6 in verse 1. So when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord God said, My man shall not, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So we're going to come back to that in a minute, but I want us to walk through... Um, this reference in Jude now, if you would go back to Jude, um, verse 6. And I want to point out some things about these angels. So again, apostasy is a departure, it is a revolt, it is a rebellion away from the true faith to a new position of full-on rejection and even mockery at times of the true faith in Jesus as Lord. It's a word that describes those who willfully abandon the faith. So I want to talk about the phrase sons of God for a moment to help us understand this from Genesis chapter 6 and what we will look at here in a moment. All of the Old Testament references, just about every scholar in, in, every, in every instance of this phrase sons of God in the Old Testament except Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, where it's really clear in that chapter and verse that it's a reference to the children of God. Every other reference, it is understood that this phrase, sons of God, in the Old Testament, is, is a reference to angels, and, and particularly in regard to demons, the fallen angels. And so um, you see this in Genesis 6, verse 4. If you remember in Jude and Job, um, we're in Jude, if you remember too many J words. Um, if you remember in Job, 
There are two instances there. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And then in Job chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And then there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Early on, it was well understood in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish teaching, in the Jewish understanding, that this phrase, sons of God, was a reference to angels. So the text today is going to deal with fallen angels who were once in the presence of God, rebelled along with Satan, and then they came to the earth and they did something absolutely horrible. And so Jude warns humans in the first century and under the inspiration of Scripture for us in this century to be well aware of what is being referenced here and to take a good look at the fall of these holy angels and what they became. We are to take a strong note of them. Jude is saying, you know this story. Now I want to make sure we kind of understand this. Um, and I th- I'm sure that you probably do. You've been able to discern this. That there are a group of angels right now that are fallen. They're called demons. And they roam on the earth. And they are evil. They are full of corruption. They are just like Satan. They lie. They might, might speak the truth. They might say true things. But it's all disguised in manipulation temptation, rebellion, chipping away at the truth. So we know that's the case. We know that Peter says Satan is on the earth moving about like a roaring lion. So, So what we're about to look at here are a group of angels that did something so bad that they have no more freedom anymore. They have been locked away. And there's a great lesson to learn from them. So they are spirit beings. They are locked away in a prison. Don't ask me where. Um, if you want to know where, James Roberts has all the answers. He'll, 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 he'll talk to you about that. We don't know where they are. They're locked away. And it seems to be that this is connected to a sin that was committed before the flood in Genesis chapter 6. Before we get into the text, I just want to remind us. Not only did mankind willfully choose to rebel against their maker, but holy angels did too. There is an extreme hatred of God that is present in the world. It is present in the spirit world. It is present in the physical world where there is a hatred of Jesus. And it's shocking to know that a third of them decided they wanted to go with Satan and to walk away from the presence of God. So let's look now. And I'm going to break this down in four ways. And uh, then we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 6 here in in a moment and, and see what we're talking about here. I just want to take for a moment and just remind you and I... Um, in the midst of talking about demons, that there are holy angels that obey the word of the Lord and they are good. 
they're, I think they're present in the room this morning. I think they're here. I think that they're around us all the time. But I want to give a caution as I share a few things of this. Is that there's sometimes Christians who become too fascinated with angels. We are to be experts on Jesus, okay? He's the one we worship. The holy angels worship Jesus. So while I find it incredibly fascinating that God has designed spirit beings for our good and they have done good from the beginning, um, we have to be careful even our perspective of them um, because our worship is connected to Jesus. You remember the book of Revelation? Angel shows up and John falls on his knees. And what does the angel always say to John? Get up, get up. I'm not the one you worship. And so you get up. And John in those moments is overwhelmed. So let me just uh, remind us of a few things. Let me give you a verse that served as kind of the foundation um, for the Jews to understand this phrase, sons of God connected to angels. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. You can write that in your notes and let me just read it to you. This is where the Jews got this idea way back when in their beginning, their understanding of angels. So Deuteronomy 32, 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So from this verse, the Jews began to develop this idea that each nation or the nations have an angel or angels for that nation. And so this is kind of where that came from. So in um, Isaiah chapter 14... In Revelation chapter 12 and in Genesis chapter 6 verse 2, there are t- these are the places that we learn about the rebellion of the angels, particularly the rebellion of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 through 14 there. And then you come to Genesis chapter 6 that we looked at a while ago, and I want to point this out, and we'll get there in a moment, but I want to kind of put it in your head. It's interesting that as the Spirit led Moses to write Genesis, that he used the phrase men, and sons of God separately. Not, and and there, was, there, were, there was an indication there of, of separate words there in Genesis. As, he, as it talks about, he'd, he wasn't going to put up with the spirit of man. And then, and then he talked about that man in another place. And then he also talked twice about the sons of God. And so for the Jews, this, this became their understanding of this reality. So who created the angels? Response question. God did. Colossians 1.16 tells us that every dominion, every authority, everything was created by Jesus. We know in Job chapter 38 that when God created the world, it says at the end of, 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 of verse 7, it says the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation. They just celebrated what God had spoken to existence. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 tells us that there are innumerable angels, more than we could ever count, and this is what they do. They, they gather in festal gathering. That just means this. They just celebrate the glory and the majesty and the wonder of God, and they can't stop themselves in doing that. We know at the birth of Jesus, an angel sh- shows up and gives an announcement about what God was about to do. We know that when Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in chapter 6, five times he uses this word against. And Paul just writes, he says, 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so the angels are involved in this cosmic war that is happening and taking place. There's an interesting passage in Daniel chapter 10. And this is, just, this is Daniel, Daniel 10, 10. Listen to this. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and you humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. Now listen to what the angel speaks. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. What the angel is speaking about is he he is sent to Daniel, and for 21 days he's battling with the demon of Persia. Michael comes to assist him to get on his way to come to Daniel. We know that angels are involved in worship. We know that, that angels, when somebody comes to faith, um, in the very presence of God, it says the angels celebrate because somebody has come to believe. As a matter of fact, this one has always fascinated me. They're fascinated about salvation, but they don't really get it. So Peter writes... In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, he says, who, um, it is, These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which, into which angels long to look. They look at salvation and they just wonder, how in the world, how amazing is this when salvation comes? So I remind, just wanted to remind us this morning, because it's going to get a little gloomier now, that there are great, not only the presence of God around us, but He has innumerable angels who celebrate Him and they are present in and around us, ministering to us. Let's, let me give you four things. Look in the text in verse 6 here. And I want to talk to you, I'm going to describe for you how Jude describes these angels. First part there says, who did not stay within their own position of authority. This is different than the next one where it says, but left their proper dwelling. Originally, the angels were given this authority. What was their authority? They were to be ministering angels. Their authority was to live in the presence of God. Their authority was to honor God, to worship God, to do God's bidding, to obey God. And so these angels had as their first position to be in the presence of God. And so as Jude writes here, he uses this phrase, who did not stay within. This Greek word means this, that they were supposed to guard, to protect, and to give watchful care over how they came into being and what God had entrusted them to do. They were to watch over their purpose to walk with God, to obey God, to worship God. 
And so Jude says they didn't stay there. They were to look over it. They had a privileged position of authority that they were to carefully watch over. And he says they did not stay um, within their authority. They wanted their own authority. They were tired of God's authority, tired of worshiping God. They didn't want to live under God's authority anymore. And they wanted their own authority. And they willfully chose to do this. Let's don't give them an out that Satan made them do this. They rebelled as well. So he says that they did not stay within this place that they were supposed to guard, their rightful place of authority. And then, he, and then let, me, let me give you an understanding of what this, this place of authority means. In the Greek, it's a Greek word called arche, A-R-C-H-E. And it means this, the original state in which something is where there is sovereignty, dominion, authority. It's a word that indicates power. So these are angels who had once lived in the presence of God, listen to this, looked at the face of Jesus and said, Jesus, you are exalted above everything, and I am a worshiper of you. You speak, and I will do it. Who have now willfully chosen to turn away from the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, to reject his authority, to have their own sovereignty, their own dominion, and their own place. This is the exact same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6.12 when he uses authorities. They willfully violated God's law by stepping away from the God-given authority. So these are, Jude says, a certain group of angels that had been put away, who had a position of authority that they were to guard, they were to keep. They rebelled against that. And there's what they did. Look at the next part of verse 6. They left their proper dwelling. So again, I remind you, these are once holy angels gathered around the throne who chose to move away and didn't want to live in God's presence anymore. This phrase, left their own, in the Greek means this, their own personal, private, unique possession. They once owned the glory of being ones in the very presence of Jesus and worshiping Him and honoring the magnificent glory that He had. So they left their own, this unique thing that had been given to them, being created by God. Then this phrase left in the Greek means this, to leave something behind. It's the idea of abandoning it where it is. I don't want that anymore. I'm turning my back on that. So God has given them a special authority They have rejected that for their own authority. Now they have chosen, I don't want to live in God's presence anymore. This is my habitation. This is where I live. I don't want to be in His presence. And so I'm leaving His presence behind me. I tell you, sin often convinces us. It often convinces us that we need everything but what God has to offer. And it's just all a lie. And it's heartbreaking. And so they abandoned the realm of God and wanted to do nothing, have anything to do with Him anymore. And the choice that they made was one with which would be a once and for all event. This is a, the verb tense in there where it says this, that they left their proper dwelling, that they abandoned it, that they were not ever going to be able to go back. There would be no defense lawyers for them. That when they abandoned this and they moved on to this state to become demons, now fallen 
angels. This would be a once and for all event that they could not return from. What did they leave behind? Well, they left behind heaven and they left behind their relationship with God so that they could live for lies. They wanted to rise higher than the Lord. They were done with submitting to Him. This word proper dwelling that the ESV uses here basically just means habitation or dwelling place. It was the place that they lived. Their pride forced them to leave this habitation that God had given them and they became just like Satan. His pride became their pride and they were just like him. Pride's trouble, isn't it? It's deeply trouble. Paul writing to Timothy is giving him some instructions in regard to elders that you are to select in the church to help govern the church and lead the church and make decisions and make sure the church is headed in the right direction. He wrote this to Timothy about pride, 1 Timothy 3, 6. An elder must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The great falling of Satan is connected to his pride and pride moves us to hate anyone and anything that would get in the way of us and our position and our authority. So Jude says, let me tell you about them, they, they, they abandoned their, their authority, they abandoned their habitation, the place that they were to dwell, and we're going to come back to it in a moment, I want to talk about the consequences just for a second, and this is what Jude says now, look at the next part of verse 6. So they've come to earth, and we're going to talk about what they did, I believe, when they came here in Genesis chapter 6. They did something so bad that God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. So this is where we begin to see that they did something so bad that God was not going to allow them to have freedom. There are demons, again, that are, that are free to wreak havoc, and they, and they do that. I do think God restrains them. Just imagine if they could just do whatever they want to do. I think there's a restraint that still is on them. But these demons, the indication is pretty clear, did something so bad that God had to lock them away, never to get out in any kind of way. So he's not ever going to let them do their sinful actions again. So God locks them up. This phrase in Jude 6 there that says... He has kept, means, it means this word reserved. This is a real picture here. God knew the danger that they were, so He has reserved a place, He has a place specified for them, and He put them in this place. They were put there in a, in a point in time. They are to be kept there, and they will continue to be there until their final judgment when they are cast into hell themselves. These are the ones that we'll read here in a moment that I'll reference to, that when Jesus rose, He went to them and He preached to them and He proclaimed His victory. So He has kept them, Jude says, in eternal chains. This word eternal means ever and always. Just as God is everlasting so will their eternal chains be the same until the final judgment. 
This is such a big deal that God takes this action against these fallen angels. What they did was so depraved that they are being carefully guarded, locked away in everlasting chains. There will be no defense attorneys for them, nor can anyone say, well, that's unfair. No, it's exactly right in what God did, and they will be bound until the final judgment. That's when their chains will end. Many of you like escape rooms. Some of you are addicted to escape rooms. Go all the time. They're not locked away in an escape room. I mean, they are locked away. They can't figure out. They can't exercise any power. Satan can't gather all of the demons and storm this prison to get them out. How powerful is our God over evil? So they're kept. No one can do anything about it. I'm thankful God did that. I hope you are as well. Can you imagine? It's evil enough around us. Can you imagine if these kind of angels were still roaming and doing their evil work? These angels lost every privilege that was once theirs. And this is what sin, hear this church, this is what sin and unbelief does to a life. Sin and unbelief does to a life is it robs that life and it locks a life away in the darkness of the prison of sin. Their extreme restraint by God is not for reformation. For their chains will be upon them and there will never be a change for them or in them. And they're locked away, Jude says, in gloomy darkness. This is what this word means. Darkness means the blackness of utter darkness. I've never been to Carlsbad Cavern, but I've heard about it. I've heard about that you get way down in there and they turn off the lights and there's just no possibility to see at all. It's just blackness of blackness of blackness. This is where these angels are right now. They cannot move. They cannot see. They cannot escape. There is no worship. There is no presence of God. There is no fellowship. There is no joy. Their fall was so great and so was their punishment. Once adoring Jesus, now in gloomy darkness. It's interesting, Peter in 1 Peter 3, 18 and following... Let me just read this to you. It says this, that being, Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went to the spirits in prison and proclaimed to the spirits. It is believed that, that these, these demons connected to Genesis chapter 6, locked away sometime in and around the flood, in this place of gloomy darkness and eternal chains, that when they, they don't have the internet down there in that prison, they're not bringing newspapers in. I love this. So, the weekend that Jesus rises from the dead, the weekend that he died, he went down there and said, I am the victorious one. And I wanted to let you know that I have died. And I will rise. So Jesus goes, according to Peter, and he speaks to the spirits in prison. Next, so they're kept in eternal chains. 
Well, we'll get to the next here in a second. So I realize that probably what I'm about to say next, maybe some people will not agree with that, but uh, I don't want to be afraid to deal with the text um, and come to some conclusions about some of this. Um, uh, as I told you several weeks ago, I have spent, I've spent a lot of hours all the time, but I've spent um, lots and lots of hours in regard to Jude because of its uniqueness and, and stuff. And so I've spent quite a bit of time looking at this and just being open to us understanding what is happening and going on here. A guy named Thomas Schreiner write, wrote something really good about what we're looking at here in Jude 6 as well as Genesis chapter 6. He writes these words. He says, We can be almost certain that Jude referred here to the sin of angels in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4. The sin of the angels committed according to Jewish tradition, again, going all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, was some kind of, and I'll say this out loud and it may sound shocking, but some kind of sexual intercourse that is hard to wrap our minds around how this happened, but it seems to be the case that's there with the daughters of men. Thomas writes here, Schreiner, he writes, Also, Jude must have understood Genesis 6, 1, 4 in this way. And so he says there's probably three reasons in regard to, the, to support this conclusion. First of all was simply what I've already said earlier, that Jewish tradition has consistently understood Genesis 6, 1 through 4 in this way. That there were angels involved, fallen angels involved, with the sin and the heinousness and the gravity of what was taking place before the flood. Secondly, we'll look at this in, in, in a few weeks ahead, in Jude, verses 14 and 15, that we understand that Jude was influenced by a book called First Enoch. And um, First Enoch goes into great de- detail about the sin and the punishment of these angels. And so if Jude was going away from the traditional understanding, Jewish understanding of Genesis chapter 6, it seems like he would have given more than one sentence um, to give some description that he was referencing something that was different than the traditional Jewish understanding of what is happening and taking place here. Um, So I think if he, again, disagreed with Jewish tradition... um, then he probably would have written more, but I believe the brevity of the the verse supports the idea that um, he was in agreement with the Jewish understanding of this. Here's the third thing, and I believe it's the stronger one, and I'll talk a little bit more about this. uh, Not long, but just a little bit more about this. Look at verse 7 of Jude. There are three phrases here that are of particular importance. Just as, first part of verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, look at the next phrases, which likewise, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, here's the third one, and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Three phrases in verse 7. Lead me to go back to verse 6 to gain my understanding of what is happening and taking place here. Again, I want you to say it with me. I want you to fill in the blank. Scripture interprets Scripture. 
So it seems clear to me that as Jude writes verse 7 in his description of Sodom and Gomorrah, when he uses the phrases, just as which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, he is giving definition back to verse 6 to understand the explanation of the emphasis in verse 6. So just as, which likewise, pursued unnatural desire. So Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned in verse 7 as an example, watch, of what the angels did. If Sodom and Gomorrah's sin is sexual in nature, as he says, just as, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, in verse 7, he is saying, this is what I've been referring to back in verse 6. So verse 7 is interpreting for us to help us understand the emphasis in verse 6. This phrase in Jude 7 about Sodom and Gomorrah, and again we'll talk more about this next week, is a Greek word called ek pornuo. And it means this, it's compounded sexual immorality. It's kind of like this, extra wrong sexual immorality. Not that sexual immorality is not wrong, but there's an emphasis there. And this word ek, it means this. It means out of the norm of nature. So watch this. So as, he, as Jude writes verse 7, again, we'll talk more about this next week. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? It was men desiring sex with angels who had come to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah as men. So understanding that, you go back to verse 6, since it's just as which likewise pursued unnatural relations. You have Genesis chapter 6, angelic beings who were once in the presence of God who have abandoned their proper dwelling, abandoned their authority, and they have come here and they have desired unnatural relationships now with women, according to what we read in verse 6. These angels, Jude said, did something out of their natural natural course in such a way that they have abandoned their rightful authority, the right place of their habitation, and they've come to earth to engage in some kind of perverted sexual immorality. So again, when you look at Jude 7, a natural desire, or your translation may say strange flesh, the men of Sodom desired angels, The angels in Genesis 6 desired the daughters of men. The men of Sodom and Gomorrah are desiring that which was not natural, homosexual relationship sexually. And the angels in Genesis 6 desiring the daughters, each desiring something that was ek pornuo, out of the natural realm to where sex should be. Now the question comes, can I, can a scholar, explain scientifically and biologically how this could happen? And here's my answer, no, I can't. I can't. So let me give an answer to this. I can't scientifically and biologically tell you how in the world somehow demons that were once, or angels that were once, in the presence of God, worshiping Him, glorifying Him, rebelled against Him, came down here and somehow figured out a way to have sex with women 
to create havoc here. I, I can't. I don't think anybody else can. But let me give a, an explanation for a moment. I do not, neither do you, have to every time let science or logic or biology have the upper hand on explaining and help us understand some of the more difficult texts of Scripture. Here's what I know I have to do. I have to affirm that the Holy Spirit wrote Scripture. And because I know that to be true, I lean heavily on that reality when I come to texts and places and stories that are difficult to understand. Because if we affirm that the Spirit is the author of all Scripture, then it is true. And what is written here, we have to lean into that. And so I, I'm one who's come to this place for the most part, not that I don't still struggle at times, not just this. I'm okay with those places that everybody likes to argue about, that there's differing perspectives. I can live with the tension that's there. I, didn't, I don't know if you know this, um, I'm not God. Uh, I don't have omniscience. I don't know all things. I'm not the supreme wise one. And there are some things time, sometimes where we just have to go, well, that's there. I can't really fully explain it all, but it's a there. And so I'm going to listen. Listen to me. Don't fight this. Because what I'm saying here is absolutely true. In these places where we're just wondering, how do we explain this? Sometimes we just have to lean into the reality that it's in the written text and we have to trust that it's true and to be okay with it's there. Logic, sometimes scientific aspects of things and study of those things give affirmation. We praise God for that. God's the God of science. He's the God of logic. And so we live by faith, leaning into the words on the page that they are inspired. Lastly, these angels are, Jude says, as verse 6 ends, they are kept there until the judgment day. Even angels, fallen angels, are not excluded from judgment if they're going to be rebellious against God. When they fall through pride and lust, God will deal with that. And they are kept there, never to get out, which proves this. They are not gods. They are not the Lord. They are not almighty. They don't have wisdom. They cannot figure out how to get out. They are under wraps. They are locked away, not free, and not to be feared by us as God is powerful over them. And what he did with these that he had created, who had rebelled against them, who had once lived in his presence and rejected him, was that he dealt with them and he will deal with them again. We don't really know when they are cast into the lake of fire. Maybe it's in Revelation 20 after the second resurrection. We don't know. Or if it's after Satan is thrown into the pit. We're not told when they're unlocked and they are thrown in, but there's no doubt that they will be cast into the lake of fire as well. And as with these angels, church, hear this today. People who do not know or serve the Lord are going to end up just like these angels. 
there will be judgment upon them. Everyone who rejects and rebels against the Lord and refuses His loving offer of salvation, they will end up in the darkness of hell. That's where they will be. So apostates, be they fallen angels or sinful people who reject, the incredible great mercy of God will be lost forever. I remind us this morning that hell is not a place of redemption where God places people there to burn the sin out of them. It is a permanent place where the fires burn eternally. So the punishment of the fallen angels and fallen humanity will be the same. So those who reject Jesus and who die, they will be in the same place that these angels who were locked away back in Genesis chapter 6, they will be in the same place. And the torment is not for reform. It's punishment. Because God judges apostasy and rejection and mockery of Jesus. Spurgeon wrote of verse 5 and verse 6 in this way. He says, see then the need of stability. The need of abiding in the faith and abiding in the practice of it. Lest we should turn out like the Israelites who, though they came out of Egypt, left their carcasses in the wilderness. Or like the angels who, though they once stood in God's presence and glory, have fallen to the depths of the abyss because of their apostasy. So let me give you a couple ideas by application as we finish. Many people today are as these fallen angels who have been in and around the presence of Jesus, church, worship, sang the songs, did the trips, got a closet full of church t-shirts, t-shirts, and they have walked away from from, from that. Praise His name today. Because I guarantee you, all of us have somebody that our heart is breaking over that has walked away from the Lord. Walked away from the Lord. And the great hope that we have today, this morning, today, this morning, that we love, is the the unbelief that there's still a chance for people to repent. So many are, are like the fallen angels. They've been in the presence of Jesus and they've walked away from Him. Secondly, Many are as fallen angels. They have been in the midst of affirming great truth to now only refuse to submit to that truth. Or they aim to change it or to downplay it or to corrupt it. Or they listen to or they go to churches who privately and publicly teach something that's not the full truth. Here's a third lesson to learn from the apostate angels. It is of the gravest of dangers to desire to live outside of the habitation of God. All that we have when we rebel against God and reject Him and defect from Him is we turn into ourselves and we become the hope. And so so that's not a hope. That's not an answer. And so just as the grave danger that the angels chose to live outside of their divine authority and the habitation of God... 
I just say to everybody in the room this morning, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. If, you, if you've been in around Jesus and you've been rejecting the truth and you've been rejecting Him, well, come back. He's calling you. As a matter of fact, He'll run down the aisle and meet you today. He's a father who welcomes prodigals home. And he'll kiss you. He'll celebrate. And so will the angels. Fourthly, just like Satan and the demons, rebellion against God comes at a great price. It comes at a great price. I've been doing a lot of reading lately in regard to the student generation and, and uh, this, this student generation uh, for a while now, not just high school, middle school students, but particularly those in their 20s and 30s. They have been practicing the sexual practices of what they call hooking up for a long time now, where you just meet somebody and, and you have sex with them that night. And, and it's been going on long enough that sociologists um, have been... Uh, doing studies of this, and they've come to some conclusions, and I don't think you'll be shocked by this at all, that the more sexual partners that you have before marriage increases exponentially with more, not just a person, multiple sexual encounters, but multiple different people sexual encounters, ends up that, you're, that, mar- that first marriage is probably not going to make it. It just won't make it. Because they're finding out that they are bringing every one of those sexual experiences outside of marriage into God's design for marriage. And it doesn't make it because you're not creating the right foundation. So Christian students in the room, 20-somethings in the room, your boyfriend and girlfriends need to be believers. Because if they're not, here's what's going to happen. They will draw you away from God. They will draw you away from church. It's just inevitable it will happen. And there's a grave cost that will come there. And so you need to guard your heart. So I remind us, just like Satan and the demons, rebellion against God comes at a great price. Save yourself heartache. I love how Solomon closes Ecclesiastes. He says, so what's the conclusion to all of this living with God not in the picture and just doing whatever you want to do. He comes to this conclusion. He says this, remember the Lord when you are young. Walk with Him when you're young. So that when you're old, you don't look back over your life and go, look at the years I wasted. Look, look how I let my purity go or how I let my holiness go or how I let my faith go for things that didn't matter. And they will come at a great price. The fifth lesson connected to these angels is this. Be aware of desiring a position or a place which God has not and will not give unto you. They wanted to place, Satan wanted to place his throne above God, and, which was impossible. The demons wanted a higher authority, and God was not going to, to give it to them. And lastly, this morning, and this is a hard one, but it's just truth, and so I unashamedly say it this morning. If God judged angels who sinned, then he will judge people who sin and do not come to, to faith in Christ. It's just there in the text, and again, we lean on it. And so, if you, so this morning, if your heart is breaking over somebody you love that has walked away, 
Well, obviously you know this. It's driven you to your knees a lot more, hasn't it? To plead with God for their eyes to be opened. And I want to remind us of what we prayed for in the beginning as we finish. We prayed today that God would prepare the soul for faith. Secondly, that we would affirm what the scripture teaches, even when scientifically, biologically, logically, sometimes it's hard to give explanation to about things, that we would lean into the scripture and affirm it. And that we would be the kind of people who now are equipped hearing this today to have conversations with people who reject the truth so that we can help them see what the truth is. So I don't know how you need to respond today. But you probably do. The Lord has been speaking today, touching you, pointing out something. So if you need to come here, I know we don't do this a lot, if you need to come here and kneel this morning, kneel. Maybe it's just a plead for somebody that you know that has apostatized themselves and they're living in rejection of God. Sometimes just taking an act, an act and a step like this just kind of solidifies a commitment to continue to pray. So if you need to do that, I want to encourage you to do that during the last song. If you're here today and you know, gosh, I, I've, I've never really believed. I've played church for a long time, but I've never come to believe. I've never, I've never repented. I'm, I'm not a believer. I'm going to be back at the back during the last song. Uh, Mark will be back there. We'll have a woman back there. If you're a woman or a girl and you want to talk to somebody, and we'll get somebody connected with you. Let's pray. Let's pray.